Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands in our AF network. So, sit down, grab a whiskey or coffee or beer, and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com. Hey, welcome back to AF Fireside. Stoked as always to have you here for something a little bit different than what we normally are doing on the podcast. So we're excited to hear what you think about it. Hope you learned something. Uh, Let's just dive right in. There's going to be a lot of me just talking to myself, and that's going to have to be okay. So... If you listened to the last 15 episodes with a critical ear, you would have noticed that we talked to 15 different brands and broke it up in three different categories. Today, we're going to be focusing on and celebrating the first five brands that we interviewed. Now, maybe you know, maybe you didn't, but those first five brands that we interviewed had something in common. And that commonality is that they were all founded by partners. And we're not just talking about business partners here. We're talking about partners in life, married dating together. These five brands have made a life for themselves doing business with their significant other. Now, that was really the context of those interviews. And the subtext was a whole bunch of other things. And in listening back to the episodes over the course of the last 15 weeks, I've pulled out uh, some really valuable advice, I think, for anybody who's looking to start a brand thought about starting a brand, considering starting their own business. And I wanted to kind of compile those findings of those five brands. Uh, So this is my high school five paragraph essay on what you need to know if you're going to start a brand in 2021 from the mouths of five experts. So without further ado, welcome to the first ever AF Fireside Clip Show. Something we've touched on with almost every founder we've spoken with on the podcast so far is the process of getting into the entrepreneurial mindset. It's something I've tried to define, and I think it might mean something different to one entrepreneur than it does to the next. Because obviously, there's a lot of different variables at play. But the big takeaway from my perspective is that a successful entrepreneur walks up to the plate with an understanding that failure is an option and is part of the process. This is a big one to learn. I'm still trying to figure it out for myself. And it can be a steep learning curve for someone that's used to the defined parameters that come with a clear expectation. And when you walk on a path that may have been paved for you. That being said, that's just my read. So let's hear it from one of the brands. Here's a little context for you. Justin and Cam Fernandez started Common Ground in 2017 with a vision for an accessible, streamlined CBD brand. Justin has a background in entrepreneurship, and Cam had just left her job teaching dance at a collegiate level. So here's some insight into what that process was like for both of them. Okay, so, so, yeah, so right now, we're, we're th- three, four years later. You guys are yeah. smiley-eyed and talking about this <laughs> like it was the easiest thing you've ever done. Is that true? <laughs> That's the impression that you give. Um, is it, you know is it as easy to just say, we're going to do it? Yes. And, and I think people get in their own way. Right. So like we, we all to some degree suffer from analysis paralysis. Right. And like, we like to overthink things. 
And sometimes you just like, you just have to do it. And the great thing is like, when you're starting a business, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to take my entire life savings and I'm going to gamble it. Right. It shouldn't be a gamble. Number one, Mm -hmm. number two, um, we always believe uh, it's a little bit of a military mantra, um, but we believe that two is one and one is none. And so if you are, quitting your entire source of income to start a whole new, whole nother, whole nother stream of income, you're probably going to end up in trouble at some point or another. But on the other side, if you rely on your day job and your, your nine to five income, and you think you have job security, um, you also might find yourself ending in trouble. And there's nothing wrong with having a side hustle or being entrepreneurial, um, you know, between the hours of 7 p.m. and midnight, right? You get home from your job and it's like, okay, now it's time to start and focus. And so whatever degree people are ready to jump into it, um, it really is as easy as just making a decision. And, and I really think that, um, you know, we start and we fail and we learn. So we can restart and fail and learn, right? And the trick is, to fail as quickly as possible <laughs> and apply those lessons, right? And there's nothing right. wrong with that. Mm-hmm. So Cam, it sounds like you you had a pretty big gap to jump when it came comes to <laughs> going from what you were doing to yes. entering this entrepreneurial mindset. Can you kind of walk yeah. us through what that looked like? Yeah, so it's interesting. I'm very much what we lovingly call a product of the system. So my mom was a teacher and my grandma was a teacher. Um, I, you know, I went to school, I got good grades, I did extracurriculars, I went to college and became a teacher. Mm -hmm. And that's what I knew. That's what I was good at. And I didn't really think about adding extra layers onto myself. Um, And so when this kind of opportunity came up, and we decided that this was, this was who, you know, what we were going to do. I really had to take time to deconstruct my identity, because I felt like, um, me as a teacher, it was almost like I was embarrassed to tell people that I was running a business because that's not who I was. That's not who I, what I was known for. And so it was, it was really interesting to kind of shift that and kind of rebuild my identity as whoever I wanted to be, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, that, that was a, that was a big, a big gap, like you say, a big gap to fill for sure. Did you, coming from, you know, what, what you guys call the system, was there a learning curve in terms of failing? I mean, that the system provides a lot of safety nets. That's a good question. I would say, I would say, yes, I would say that I didn't really think that failing was much of an option because usually, you know, you either succeed in the system or you're not in the system. Right. Right. And when they give you F's, on your papers versus A's, right? Like there's, there's a message that they're sending and trying to really yeah. indoctrinate you to not fail. Um, you know, and, and that's, yeah. I think that's dangerous. Well, um, and it was, it was hard because for me, Justin's always been entrepreneurial. Um, and so I just left that to him. And so adding that characteristic onto myself, it was scary um, cause I didn't want to fail. I didn't want us to fail. And like Justin said, I was the one that, that volunteered to, you know, kind of take the lead on it. Mm-hmm. Obviously we're a team, but it was, it was scary to kind of just figure out how to make it work without failing. Um, but once I learned that failing, like Justin said, actually is part of the process in growing a business. Um, 
I don't know. It was just, it was just a process to wrap my head around that idea. All right. So it, it sounds easy when you put it like that, but you have to keep in mind, just like we heard that understanding that failure as a part of the process is really a process in itself. Just like you, I, I don't feel great when I mess something up or when something that I've invested my time and my energy into doesn't go the way that I've hoped or planned for it to. So being able to accept that is a learned skill. It takes practice and it takes discipline. And the reality is it's a lot easier to hear than it is to practice. I'm still learning that myself. So on a similar note, one of my favorite takeaways from the conversation with Leslie and Carl from Rogue Territory was in line with this idea of gracefully accepting failure. Before I hit you with it, I'll give you a little bit more context again. If you know raw denim, then you already know Rogue Territory. RGT is a premium denim brand that I associate most with an extremely loyal following. So in the chat that we had in January, we talked a lot about what it was like to grow a brand in an era where social media was mostly organic. That means that consumers engage with brands and businesses naturally versus the pay-to-play nature of social media advertising that we see these days. That switch has played into the way that entrepreneurs and brand founders compare themselves to one another. And in a world of paid social, success is not always what it appears to be on your screen. And you probably deal with that in your day-to-day -day on your regular social media feeds. Imagine what that's like when you're running a business and you're comparing your brand to another brand. So let's hear it from them. When we spoke a week or so ago, Leslie, I think it was you that it had made uh, the sentiment around not taking failure or success personally. And I thought that was really interesting. Is, is that like a core, kind of one of your core beliefs when it comes to the brand? It is. And I think that goes back to just like the universe and the right time and the right place. Mm -hmm. And so for anyone out there who is working on a passion project or trying to launch something um, or for someone that has and experienced success, like I, we, we are, we, I, I don't think either of us can sit here and say like, oh, like we're successful because like, we're just so awesome. So and Carl's like vision is so amazing. And we are just the best business operators. And, you know, it's like, yes, there is, there is hard work. You got to grind it out. You got to be dedicated. You got to put the work in. Um, you got to um, make good decisions, but a lot of it is out of your control. So I can't sit here and say like, we're successful because like it's 100% us and we're just like so awesome. Like right. a lot of it is luck. And um, same thing goes for failure. If you fail, it does not mean that um, your product or your service isn't good or that it isn't what people want. It a lot of it could be like wrong time, wrong place, you know? And so that's why I just, we don't take either one personally. Um, right. I think a lot of it is a lot of it is kind of out of your control. I don't know. And, like that, it, well, and that that's really the kind of the, the foundation, the ethos that we approach everything with is if it feels forced, then it's probably yeah. wrong. We make every and most likely going to yeah. fail. We make every business so, decision on gut. Like, so, it, it, you know, obviously there's those times when you want to put yourself out there and take risks. Um, I mean, owning a business is a risk, but um, right. where you're like, oh, that's not normally what we would do, but maybe that'll work. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, you have to leave yourself open for those opportunities. Yeah. But at the same time, don't always, uh, don't feel wrong in questioning yourself. Like mm -hmm. that, there's a reason why you're doing it and there's not. For us, we were both working full-time jobs when Rogue Territory started. It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't, um, oh, like we've got money saved up and we can put all of our hopes and dreams into Rogue Territory yeah. and see what happens. It was, 
nights and weekends for rogue territory I for mean, two years it wasn't until 2013 that both of us were full-time full working on rogue territory and a lot of people don't like realize that so you gotta you gotta either embrace the slow burn where you're like okay this you gotta be patient you gotta be patient or but, and you that's gotta hard have now you gotta for, have financing that's like, hard for right, like to like jump jump in yeah both feet and be like this is my job this is what i'm doing every day you know right. and um so for kids now i think it's really hard because like we have to remember that instagram is a snapshot you know mm -hmm. and so they're seeing these brands that just like seemingly have like overnight success and all of these things and i think we were re really lucky that when we were young and we were starting the business, we didn't have that to look at. Cause then you're always like measuring, measuring. yourself against someone else's it's success. That, that didn't exist. Like we had nothing, we had no models of success and nothing to look at like the way Instagram shows you now. And so um, you just kind of put your head down and you did your own thing. But now it's like, it's so tempting to just constantly measure yourself against the success of others because right. it's like so in your face every time you open the app it's just like they you want know. you to they they want yeah. you to be you know looking at the competition and and right. it's, it's tricky oh, yeah. it's a, totally a, it took a long world. time you know we it was a it was a slow organic growth for us but i think that's probably why we're still around today you know all right so i think we've hammered that down failure is a part of the process you're going to come into that realization in your own way but all that said, that's an internal process, and we haven't even gotten to the external processes yet when it comes to starting a brand from scratch. So let's talk about the big one, and that's creating and executing what your brand image is gonna look like. So it's not a secret. The brands that are best at grabbing our attention are the brands that are best at grabbing our attention. As much as I'm here for the products and the passion behind them, I'm also here for the attention to detail that it takes to design a brand image and curate the lifestyle that surrounds it. And that's something that I've really developed a fascination with in the last year. Uh, my first high school job that I ever worked at was in the kitchen of a retirement home. And I think of something that one of the cooks said to me a long time ago. I think of it often. And he said that you eat with your eyes before you eat with your mouth. I think that that idea is true uh, not just in food across many platforms, but especially when thinking about the businesses that we buy from, right? So I consider myself a pretty educated, pretty critical consumer, and I know that I've developed this muscle to look at a website or an advertisement or even an Instagram account and know from the first few images and quotes and captions whether or not this is a brand that I want to get behind, if I want to make a purchase from them, if I want to support them, if I want to share their posts on social media. So when I think of a consistently compelling brand, uh, in terms of content and brand image, I think of my friends at Smith's Leatherbomb, and that's exactly why I wanted them to be one of the first brands we interviewed for Fireside. Um, once again, let me hit you with some context. Shane and Mandy Smith, they started their leather care business as a side effect of a home-wide cleanse of all the toxic products that they had in their house. If you want to hear the full story, uh, they've said it in a bunch of places. They've said it on our full episode. Go back and listen to that. But if you're not familiar with them, a quick glance at their Instagram account, that's at Smith's Leather Bomb, will have you agreeing with me, I think, that they have their brand image nailed down. Uh, Shane's been a close personal friend since around the time that they launched the brand, and it, it's been really fun for me to watch their brand evolve over time. Uh, it's been cool to see how they transitioned from kind of having this one skew leather care operation to now expanding their image to include other all-natural products for body, home, uh, in a seamless way that didn't 
didn't detract from the brand image that they had already set in stone. So when we sat down for a fireside chat, I asked Shane about the tools that he came to the table with that helped him build that image and asked him to share a couple trade secrets when it comes to effectively telling your brand story. In our infancy, in our development, I, I remember telling Mandy in our marketing approach and our branding strategy, I would try to imagine the worst thing that someone could say about us and our brand mm -hmm. and try to put a positive spin on that or just embrace what it is. So in our infancy, and I feel like with a lot of startups and especially one man crew, if you're a one man business, there's this longing and this desire to present yourself as something bigger than you are to try to trick someone like all the language on your website has to be super professional and all the images have to be because you want to convey or lend that idea that although you're a one-man operation seemingly it's this global enterprise right right and we sort of flipped that on its head like we never from day one we didn't care about misleading anyone or tricking anyone into thinking that we're a multi-million dollar corporation so I can remember telling Mandy, like, we should just imagine what's the worst thing someone, what is this just a husband and wife pouring this at their kitchen table? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's so, your like, version of it. That's like the highest level. Well, of well I'm sure you could, I'm sure you could think of some, uh, some more colorful language yeah. to incorporate or worse right. things. But yeah, I just remember like if someone was going to uh, criticize or critique the product, are you, are you serious? It's just three ingredients. I mean, I could stir these up. Like, yeah, it's, we're very forward in, you know, the ingredients that go into our product. You can make it yourself. I mean, like we wanted a certain level of transparency, but also vulnerability, if that makes sense, like in our approach and we're not trying to mislead anyone or present ourselves as bigger or larger than life. It's very much. And I think that resonates. Like we get so many DMS and emails from startups and small businesses and husband and wife teams and, I think the fact that we're relatable and approachable and, you know, respond as quickly as we can to any messages or emails we get, regardless of who they're from, like, I think that resonates, particularly with millennial customers who, you were the one of the first people who told me early on, I'm here for the stories. Like, for you, it's all about the stories. And for us, that, that stuck with me, I think, in a lot of ways. And it's about how we present the story. Um, in terms of content creation, and this is probably a different conversation, but I envy a lot of other brands who have new patterns, new drops, new products and goods, because that's all a possibility for content, right? right. So a leather worker or a leather crafter sources a new color leather or a new pattern or new fixtures or hardware design, like that's an opportunity for him to present and relay new content to his audience. But for us, it's very much that we're going on, this will be four years of the same wax in the same tin with the same label. And so I just realized on the front end, if, if I'm going to keep this from getting boring, I have to have a certain level of vulnerability in the day-to-day -day and the, the steps we take and the missteps and the things we do wrong and how we rebound and sort of let people in. And I think people have been kind to, to kind of join us on our journey. And I think that they quietly root for us and hope that we'll do well. So um, yeah, that's sort of how the spin that we put on it, you know, try to be relatable down to earth for me going back as early as I can, I mean, into like middle school and high school, when people were talking about their careers and what they wanted to do. The only thing I think I've ever been good at is talking to people and maybe creative storytelling. All right, so when Shane and I get talking, it, it always goes back to Instagram, but lest we forget, as Carl and Leslie uh, brought out in their interview, social media is not everything. 
It's easy to put a lot of focus and pressure on socials because that's just the world that we live in. Everybody's glued to them. But brand image and design goes way beyond the content that brands are posting on their social media feeds. That's hard for me to wrap my head around, though. I'm a millennial. I got my first smartphone my senior year of high school. I haven't looked back since. I'm glued to my phone. That's just the reality. Uh, so as I said, you know, it's hard for me to wrap that idea around my head. And I'm sure it is for a lot of founders and makers in this weight class that are coming up into this world of entrepreneurship with social media on the top of the list. Uh, but the reality is it's a component of a bigger picture. And that bigger picture is design. Uh, so to understand that idea, I, I found it really helpful to have this discussion with a brand that was in the game for a long time before likes and follows were really even a thing. Uh, one of the major differentiators for Malin and Getz, uh, and a big contributor, I think, to their success to date is a lifelong commitment to effective design. Uh, it's not just in their brand image, but it spans across their products, their marketing campaigns, and even their brick-and-mortar stores. So here's a little bit of what I learned when I sat down with uh, their founders, Matthew Mallon and Andrew Getz. I know that design is really a core integral part to it. You know, obviously a really important component to us both personally, but also from a, our business perspective. And the one thing I always learned, the mantra design, which I think was by Dieter Roms, um, was good design is good business. And of course, there's lots of different interpretations. It's very subjective what people think is good and what uh, is not good. But from our perspective, we wanted to create this concept of transparency, meaning that all the information was right on the bottle. It wasn't hidden. It was easy to read. Even the, the way it was um, put on the, on the bottles, there were these different gradations. One were the directions, one were the caution, one were the ingredients. So once you knew our products, um, you understood where to look for for particular information, and everything also was color coded. So face was blue, body was green, hair was red. So that if you're in the shower and you got soap in your eyes, you could you could see which product you were looking for. So we love this idea of creating um, a system for our products, and what was reflected on the outside was even more reflected on the inside. So the design was a way for us to advertise the efficacy and quality of what we were putting in the bottles. So design also wasn't a big deal 17 years ago, in fact, or it, it was a big deal. It was very elaborate. So if you think of like traditional Estee Lauder or L'Oreal brands, that's pretty much what proliferated the marketplace at the time. So no one was doing anything minimal or very pared back and just very direct and honest, as Andrew said. But in addition to all of that, as you start to talk about simplicity and bringing things back to what's needed and necessary on a daily basis, like an apothecary a hundred years ago would have done or like your grandparents would have taken care of themselves. We started thinking about the overload of, so when Andrew met me, um, I had um, left my first job, which brought me to New York City out of college to start my second job, which was a beauty buyer at Barney's New York. And when you're a beauty buyer for a large major national company, you have every single product available to you that ever existed and more than you can imagine what you could do ever, ever do with. I also have a real skin sensitivity. I'm, uh, I have rosacea, I have eczema, I have seborrhea and I have fragrance allergies. So as a beauty buyer, there wasn't a lot that I could use. I would bring all these things home. Andrew was trying them out. He was upgrading from maybe a bar of soap to something else. 
And as we started to get to know one another and spend more time together, we ended up moving in together. And what happens when you live two people in an apartment in New York City? You don't have a lot of space. So, and it doesn't matter pretty much how much money you have, for the most part, you live in a cramped, small New York City apartment. Design's really important to us. We're working for fashion companies and design companies, and the, this is how we live our lives. These are the things that are important to us. Um, and so with a small, tiny New York City bathroom, we wanted something that we could both share that could sit out and always look good because we didn't have the space otherwise, and we didn't want to have two cleansers and both of them be ugly. What if we could have one that we could both share and use regardless of our skin types and have it always look good on the shelf? And so all of these sort of ideas started to percolate into what we are today. And it's very, very cool. different than a bar of soap in half. <laughs> exactly. So, so on the design front, how has, how has the design evolved as the last 17 years have gone on? Not much. Not, yeah, I think, we've, we've, I think yeah. that's part of the success of the brand is that we've stayed true to who we are throughout the, the trajectory. Um, matter of fact, the one thing that had changed very sort of early on is that we introduced um, a second color to the printing of the bottle. And then we went back to the original monochromatic colors of each bottle, which was the original purity. And we're so glad that we did that. So, you know, we've, we've experimented. We've you know, you have to be able to flex a little bit. Um, but ultimately, we always come back to the original concept. The one thing that does change um, often, or every time we build a store, is that no two stores are alike. So we use a different uh, design for each uh, store that we build. So that you're shopping, you're not in this like McMallon and Getz environment where everything's the same. And I think that's particularly important now as we hopefully come out of COVID and people return to the joy of shopping on the main street or um, in cities and everything, that it'll be really invigorating to see like, ah, oh, this space is different from the one in Uptown or Downtown or Los Angeles or London or Hong Kong. And I think that, that design and creates um, passion for the brand. All right, so if you've been around here for a while, you know how we like to do things. We started zoomed in, we've zoomed out to 30,000 feet, and now we're gonna zoom back in again. Uh, we talked about the mindset of an entrepreneur, the lifestyle that that entails, uh, and some of the good strategies to navigate the feelings that you're gonna have when you inevitably encounter failure. But I wanna close out talking about a few other components that I've heard, I've noticed echoed throughout this mini series. And that's a high level of self-criticism paired against a deep passion to do what you love, create what you love, fill a void in the marketplace that you feel only you and only your brand can fill. Those two ideas, you know, when you put them down on paper, they feel a little bit at odds with one another. Uh, when you say passion, I visualize pink hearts and good feelings and that overwhelming sense of purpose. And being critical of yourself is to take all of those good things and put them under a microscope and really scrutinize, is this the right thing? Is this the right time? Uh, could I do this any better? In reality, I think that it takes a balance of those things together to keep the ship moving straight in the direction that you want it to go. In this clip coming up here, I want you to take note of those two concepts that play together. Uh, Justin James and his wife Amanda started Opie Way fairly recently. They took Justin's passion for sneakers and perfected a means of production to now offer both a high-quality heritage-level sneaker and keep the ancient trade of shoemaking alive in 21st century America. But Justin explains it better here. Take note of that passion. 
when I was in middle school, if you would have asked me what I was going to do, I would have told you I'm going to design shoes for Nike. Um, and I followed that dream through middle school, through high school, went to college um, to design shoes, got this awesome mentor while I was in college, was ready to go down the design path. And um, I don't know, something just changed in me and, and how I saw mass production of shoes. And so I had this tug on my heart that, dude, you've got you've to gotta figure this out in a different way. Um, so I came out of college, went in a totally different direction. I was working a job, but also feeling like, man, you gave up this thing that you wanted to do your whole life. So I sourced these vintage uh, sewing machines I found on Craigslist, um, drove like two hours away, bought them, moved them into our garage. And I told myself, if I'm not going to design shoes, I'm at least going to make my own shoes. I'm going to learn how to, to be a cordwainer. And that was like, I did that for like four years and I was probably more into that than I was the actual design of sneakers through my whole life. So, um, you know, fast forward to us getting our stuff and moving into a factory. I thought I knew a lot. I had self-taught myself for four years. I had learned how to design shoes all the way through school, but we opened this factory and it was like, man, I, I've, I've never really like messed with this many machines. We've got some of these machines that I don't know how to work them. I'm, I can't find anybody that knows how to work them. Damn. And it was, it was probably the hardest thing I've done in my whole life. So we moved into our factory in February of 2019. It took me eight, nine, almost 10 months to really feel like I know what I'm doing and I can construct a shoe that I think it's good enough to sell. So I mean, it's hard to imagine like that, those 10 months because it went by so fast, but it was also like making no money, spending 12 hours in the factory, trying to figure out how to do this stuff, but not having a mentor, not even really having YouTube videos. I don't know. It was, um, it was difficult, but I just, I, I had this like vision of what we were going to build. And I knew every day was like a step towards that. So we just kind of, I put my head down and we just tried to do it. So maybe, maybe you have to say yes. Maybe this is an answer that you have to say yes to represent the brand well. And I'll understand if you do, but yeah. you had that vision. Are you there now? Um, I don't know if I'll ever be there, honestly. And I think that's, um, that's probably just like a personality yeah. thing. So more, more about you than the actual product. Yeah. Totally. I, I will tell you, I think, uh, I think our shoes are really, really good right now. And the models that we've released have been models that I've wanted to release for such a long time. They're executed really nice. The leathers that we're using right now, I'm totally in love with, but I do have all these things that I want to do and we haven't done it yet. Yeah. And so I don't know in 10 years, maybe ask me that question sure. and I'll be a little bit closer to it, but I don't know if that ever changes. Do you, do you consider yourself like a highly self-critical person? Uh, probably the toughest person on myself more than anybody yeah. else I know. Isn't that just the way to do it though? I, for me, it is. Yeah. I, I, I know like if I'm going to pass a test, um, it, like if these shoes are good enough, I just need to ask myself. And if I'm feeling any certain way about right. this isn't right, it's just not right. Yeah. No, I definitely have had similar, not obviously not shoes, but similar experiences and yeah. kind of, oh man you're being you're being so hard on yourself or like 
it's not, I don't feel like it's not a weakness to know exactly what you want and exactly what you like, especially driving a product mm -hmm. to know what you want. Even if you don't know how to get there, that like that self-criticism and ability to then take that criticism and, and mobilize it into improvement. That's how you really, you know, it, in my experience and working with brands and getting to connect with, with founders and makers and creatives, it's people that have that kind of quality that, that sets you to the next level. All right, so there you have it. I think that we are leaving today's episode with some very valuable pieces of advice from those five brands. Uh, so you can go back and check out the full interviews with Common Ground CBD, Smith's Leather Bomb, Opiway, Rogue Territory, and Malin and Getz on our Spotify page, on our website, or any streaming platform of your choice. Uh, catch us next week where we will be diving in to learn more from our five brands that were handed down from generation to generation. Look forward to seeing you then. Have a good one. I'm Lucas Fitz, and this is AF Fireside. To learn more about all the brands featured on the podcast, check out fireside.shopaf.co, and don't forget to subscribe to us on your streaming platform of choice. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com.